This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. The woke madness in history education is off the rails. Well, how do we change it? McClanahanAcademy.com. And because you listen to this podcast, if you use the coupon code PODCAST at checkout, you get 25% off every day, all day, 365 days a year on every class at McClanahanAcademy.com. So go to McClanahanAcademy.com, use coupon code PODCAST at checkout, and get a real history education at 25% off. If you like this podcast and you want it without advertisements, head over to Patreon.com and become a member of The Brian McClanahan Show. For 10 bucks a month, you get all the podcasts ad-free, including video, and you also get a special Q&A podcast. I'm only going to answer your questions, your listener-generated episodes, through those Q&As. So head over to Patreon.com, get this podcast ad-free, no ads, not even things like this, and you really do help support The Brian McClanahan Show with really cool stuff on the back end. If you like this podcast, don't forget to follow me on social media. Find me on Twitter, now X, at Brian McClanahan. Also on Facebook, at Brian McClanahan. And on YouTube, where you can watch the podcast, at Brian McClanahan. It's a great time. I'd love to see you there. A battle over public history in Texas shows that the real fault lines in the history wars are between academics and amateur historians. I'll talk about that on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Let's talk about a civil war, quote-unquote, as the headline piece says, over history in Texas. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about this piece and this issue, I'm not, I haven't really followed this, but it shows you what the real fault lines are in this history war in America, to at least an, a, a degree. The title, the headline of this piece is very interesting. In fact, the headline says, Civil War Rages in Texas as Historians Peddle Leftism Instead of History. So let me back up here and talk about the academy, the academics. The Establishment Academy. I've talked about it a lot on this show. But what you have generally is about 95%, if not more, if not 99% of mainstream academic historians being on the left. This becomes a pretty incestuous group. They all peer review each other's papers. They all promote each other. And if you go on places like Twitter and you start looking at Twitter historians, this is what you see. These people are, are a group and they all prop each other up, even if their opinions are stupid and they're not really worth the time to read. They start writing stuff that is completely outlandish and then they promote it. And of course, uh, they'll get it because they have buddies in their academic journals. They get it in the journals. Then of course, they get somebody at a university press that they know to publish their garbage. And this becomes establishment history. Now, it doesn't mean that all of it is bad. Even some of the bad stuff has some nuggets in it that you can take away of it. But generally what you have is a cabal 
a junto controlling the academic profession. And a lot of these people are really insecure, and I mean that. They're very insecure people, and so if you challenge any of them, they retreat, uh, they into their little shell, they get pretty nasty, um, and this is a real problem. Because if we're going to have real historical discussions, then we need to have real historical discussions. And, for example, if we're going to talk about the war, and of course the war I'm talking about the 1860s, then you need to have a real discussion about this. But that's not usually what happens. If you bring up anything to challenge these people, and I'll give you an example. The other day, I had challenged the dope Brooks Simpson on something he said. Well, what does he do? He says something like, I like to own people or something like that. And a couple other people said the same thing. Well, why would you assume that? Where have I ever said that anywhere? I mean, this is the kind of thing they do. They just resort to some type of uh, name calling or using some type of pejorative or some type of slam, they think, some type of flex that it's going gonna, it's gonna to beat me back so I won't say anything. But it's so outrageous and so stupid, it doesn't even deserve a response, typically. Though I did zing Brooks on that one. Uh, because his positions were so ridiculous, it was very easy to quote-unquote own him. And I did in the debate. So, But this is usually what they do. They, um, they resort to some type of childish name-calling when they can't win the debate. Now, the other thing they do is try to discredit anyone who's not an academic. And this also happens. Uh, if you're not teaching at a major research institution, well, then they try to put you down. Um, if you don't have an advanced degree, they try to put you down. These are things that happen in the process of these history wars. Now, does this mean that you have to be an academic historian to produce good work? Absolutely not. There's a lot of good work out there by people who aren't academic historians or even have advanced degrees. A lot of it. Now, there's some work being produced by people who don't have advanced degrees or at least PhDs and who are not academic historians who also produce some pretty bad work. And I'm talking about Kevin Levine and his searching for black Confederates. And so I know some of the things I say get under his skin, which is why I say them. But the fact is, you've got some bad work being produced by people like that, too. However, history used to be a, a, a field that just about anybody could do if you had time and energy and you wanted to go out and do some research and find things. And generally, the other knock on academic historians, which this piece actually gets into, is the fact that a lot of these people, again, it's this kind of incestuous thing. They just cite each other all the time. They don't go out and actually do a whole lot of primary research. And this is what you find in most of these leftist books. They don't go out and actually do the work. They're lazy, in other words. They don't actually do anything to defend their positions, except for citing all these other secondary sources. And you see it all the time. You'll go in, all right, there's, here's a note in this book. Let me go to the footnote. Let me go to the end notes. A lot of times it's end notes now. Let me go to the end notes and see what they're citing here. And a lot of times it's, this secondary source, this secondary source, this secondary source. And there isn't any primary references. Well, the job of a historian, if you're going to use notes, is to use primary sources as much as possible because that would show that here you go. 
And I'll give you another example from that where, where this really comes into play and how I, with this Brooks Simpson debate. Now, Brooks Simpson claims he's a conservative, um, which is hilarious to me. But anyways, uh, he, there was a, a discussion over the Crittenden Compromise, and did Jefferson Davis actually support the Crittenden Compromise? And he cited William C. Davis's book to say that Jefferson Davis didn't support the Compromise. Well, all you got to do is go out and get to the Congressional Globe and cite where it was actually mentioned on the floor of the, of the Congress and the Senate that Jefferson Davis did, in fact, support the Crittenden Compromise. Not from Jefferson Davis, but from other members who were on the Committee of 13, that Davis did, in fact, support the Crittenden Compromise. He just wouldn't vote for it because the Republicans wouldn't vote for it. So, uh, that means that Davis was actually interested in compromise. But Simpson wants to deny that. Even when the evidence, the direct primary evidence is pointing against what he says, he wants to deny that. This is what happens with these people and why they are so dangerous. So let's get into this piece. It's at the Daily Wire. Savoy rages in Texas as historians peddle leftism instead of history. A battle is broken out in Texas between academic historians and hobbyist history buffs, with the hobbyists advocating for exploring history through primary source material and the experts opting to push modern far-left politics. Right. Again, this, this piece is actually going to use some of the same language that I've used on social media, but these people really aren't historians. Academic historians really aren't historians anymore. They're activists. They're activists. They have a clear political agenda or a clear social agenda, and they want to use history in a way that will get those agendas fulfilled. That becomes the goal of history. History is a weapon. They've weaponized the use of history. This is exactly what George Orwell pointed out in 1984. It's what all communist Marxist regimes do. They have to use history to prove a point and make it to where their position becomes the dominant position. Their political and social position becomes the dominant position. The piece says, It came to a head this month after a veteran publisher of Texas history books wrote to a member of the Texas Historical Commission, a government body that runs historical sites, with a list of all the books sold at the gift shop of the Levi Jordan Plantation outside of Houston. Of the 23 books sold, few had to do with the plantation, Texas history, or slavery in Texas. Instead, many were modern leftist political screeds or unrelated lamentations about black victimhood in other times and places. They included books about Malcolm X, an Afro-Vegan cookbook, a novel about a black man in Harlem, a book about Chicago's black slums, and a book by racial black feminist author Bell Hooks, tackling racism among feminists. They also included a book from Franz Fanon, who poised that violence is necessary for decolonization about revolutionary struggle and the continuing influence on movements from Black Lives Matter to decolonization. So here you have a plantation, a historic site, and they all have bookshops. You go in the bookshop, you go to the plantation, you want to see the house, First of all, this is something I've talked about with, with historic sites and interpretation now, how bad they've gotten and why people don't go to these things anymore. Because this is what you get if you go to the plantation. You go to, you go to Monticello. What do you want to hear at Monticello? You want to hear about Thomas Jefferson. That's not what you get. You hear about Sally Hemings the whole time and the slaves that worked on the plantation. You don't hear anything about Thomas Jefferson. Or, or you go to see Montpelier, which is James Madison. You don't hear about James Madison. When you go to these places and the historians get involved, this is what they do. The interpretation becomes about a leftist agenda. 
not about the person that lived there, that owned the plantation, that made the plantation what it was. No, no. The only reason you would go to Monticello is because Thomas Jefferson lived there, not because of anything else. I mean, because of who Thomas Jefferson was or James Madison was. That's why you go to these places. You want to see. It'd be, it'd be like going to Versailles and not talking very much about Louis XIV. If you went to Versailles and all you talked about was the construction workers who died in the process of building Versailles. You didn't talk about anything about Louis XIV. The only reason it exists that people would want to go there is because of Louis XIV. That's it. That's what it's like. But this is what we've done to history in America. And it's really pathetic and sad because these people have an agenda. The situation was similar at the nearby Varner Hogg Plantation where White Rage and books by Ibram X. Kindy about diversity, equity, and inclusion were being sold. Michelle Haas, a veteran publisher of Texas History Books who chairs a nonprofit called the Texas History Trust, sent this inventory of the books of the Texas Historical Commission. I attach a list of the books available with the publisher's description of each, she wrote. You may assess for yourselves how relevant they are to the history of Brazoria County. Why is the state of Texas selling an Afro-vegan cookbook at a state historic site? Or fiction about people living in Chicago in the 1890s? What do books written and edited by Ibram X. Kindy have to do with the Varners, Pattons, or Hogs? Haas asks in another email referencing to the, uh, referring, I'm sorry, to the plantation. In an internal email, a member of the commission, David Gravel, agreed that some of the materials are not about accurate Texas history, but seem to wander off into present social issues. The commission later parred the inventory at its historic sites, it says, for unrelated reasons. But on December 7th, Texas Monthly Magazine posted an article with Haas as its main subject. It caused an uproar by twisting the story from one about a woman advocating for more books about Texas slavery at Texas plantations to one about a white woman who wanted books about slavery banned. This is what they do. Here is this woman, Haas. She's white, and she says, what do these books at, this, at these historic sites have to do with the historic sites? I mean, you might see a book there about maybe plantation homes, to other Texas plantation homes, maybe just southern plantation homes. That would be okay. Or maybe you'd have books about uh, Texas history or even slavery in Texas, which she did actually advocate those books should be there, instead of this other garbage that is simply left-wing activism. But the Texas Monthly, which is a magazine written by leftists, for leftists, makes it about, twists the issue about race. You see this with... Um, uh, Claudine Gay, who was forced to resign from Harvard, who still go though gets her nine hundred thousand dollar a year salary to teach nothing at Harvard, but she was forced to resign and because she was a plagiarist. The way the story has been twisted is that if you're if you're against plagiarism, then you're a racist. I mean, this is how stupid this stuff is getting. People can see it now. There's you want to talk about the real woke in America? It's people are becoming woke to this to how ridiculous this stuff really is. Normal people are waking up to the left and their shenanigans. And maybe the tide will turn. I don't know. But as long as you have all these activist historians running around out there, it's going to be really tough. Texas Monthly, written writing based on an interview with Haas and a collection of Gravel's emails, said that Gravel falsely stated that there is no question these books are not about Texas history. The outlet attempted to dunk on the official by saying that a whopping one of the 23 actually was. 
That description wasn't accurate. One of the 23 titles on the list, for example, was Remembering the Days of Sorrow, which features testimony from numerous Texan slaves, it wrote. So this is their gotcha. Oh, wait a second. None of the books were about Texas. But wait, one was. One that you removed was about Texas. This is not about Texas. This is about a white woman saying we don't need books about these things at a Texas plantation. The article's crux that Haas and conservatives wanted slavery books banned rested on the statement that, quote, when asked if it was her intention that historical books about slavery be removed from sites, Haas demurred. But the statement was invented out of thin air. The author of the Texas Monthly article, Stephen Monticelli, is a reported socialist who was fired from another Texas paper after making false accusations against conservatives. Again, what's happened? You got this guy, Monticelli, or Monticelli, I don't know how he says his name, who is lying, openly lying, writing a, a headline that's false, talking about history books that shouldn't be there that are false. I mean, this is the problem. He's an activist, and he's going to circle the wagons around other activists because they want their agenda to be at these places. That's the whole goal. Haas recorded an interview with with. Haas and shared it with the Daily Wire, and the audio shows that he never asked her if she wanted to remove books about slavery, likely because it was obvious from the conversation that she did not. Haas's entire point, after all, was that books like Ibram X. Kindy's are not about slavery. Monticelli actually asked her, quote, is it possible that the response to your raising these concerns could have unintended effects? Haas said it was possible and suggested that as a way to avoid the risk, if they removed a book like Roots, they should replace it with a book like one about Britt Johnson, a former Texas slave. The journalist then asked if there were books that were included on the list that you found to be good representation of the sorts of literature that Texas Historical Commission should carry. Her number one example was Remembering the Days of Sorrow. That absolutely should be their household, Monticelli. Okay, because I wanted to make sure I wasn't getting the wrong impression regarding the list, he replied. His article, however, did give his readers the wrong impression. This is the point. This is the point. You see, the whole point of the historical activism is to give the wrong impression. You look at the Arlington Monument. This happened over and over again. The Arlington Monument was written to talk about the New South, not about slavery or the war. I mean, it, it was swords into plowshares. It was to heal the past. It was a reconciliation monument around dead Confederates in a predominantly Union Cemetery. That was the whole point. Yet, it was taken down. It was taken down. Even, even Karen Cox said, well, yeah, that monument's different, but it should go anyways. Why? Because it doesn't fit a narrative. After Haas confronted Texas Monthly editor Dan Goodgame with the audio, the publication made numerous changes, including removing the sentence alleging that Haas refused to say if she wanted to ban slavery books. But the correction appended to the article concealed the actual changes instead of making it seem like a pedantic issue. The correction itself introduced an equally inflammatory charge against Host that reinforced the article's central false narrative. The correction itself, which remains at the bottom of the published piece and can be read in full below, states that Haas emailed a list of books that she objected to. Throughout the interview, as in her email to officials, Haas described how her list was simply a list of books available for sale and that she did not object to all of the books, 
Here's a complete list of the books that are for sale at these particular sites. Here's a list of everything that's for sale. Make of it. Use your judgment to decide if these titles are relevant to Texas history, she told Monticelli. In fact, Haas warned Texas Monthly in advance about getting that fact wrong. It's certainly not how certain professors want to portray me as someone who just doesn't want any bad stuff there. No, I do want bad stuff there, she said. So here's Texas Monthly purposely distorting the issue. Purposely distorting the issue. It sounds mean like there's a lawsuit potentially brewing here for Haas. If this is all true. Texas Monthly did not return a request for comment and did not provide the Daily Wire with the public records underlying the story, which Monticelli initially concealed from Haas in their interview before alluding to a list he had received that he wasn't sure how to interpret. He also said some books the Texas Historical Commission apparently removed were not on Haas's list, which tended to back up the Commission's assertion that the books were removed as part of a general inventory reduction. The Texas Historical Commission did not return a request for comment. Texas Monthly's article was picked up by other outlets who distorted it even further, leading to a firestorm of threats against Haas. This is the danger, right? This is the problem. These people are dangerous because they're about character assassination. It's like I talked about at the beginning. You can make a point. You can have a valid argument. You can say we disagree, but they will try to assassinate your character because that's the only thing they have left. It's really pathetic. Those books include Roots by Alex Haley, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, White Rage by Carol Anderson, and Stamped from the Beginning by Ibram X. Kendi. See a pattern? Daily Kost wrote, It seemed that amateur historian and, and graphic designer Michelle Haas is the source of the movement to remove mentions of historical slavery at Texas historical sites. It added, A non-sequitur since only one of those books, Roots, is about slavery and none are about Texas slavery. So this is the Daily Kost, which is a pathetic publication, doing the same thing, character assassination. So they cherry-pick these books and see the pattern, and what she's trying to do is remove mentions from slavery. She's an amateur historian and graphic designer. She's not even qualified to make these kind of decisions. There's the hidden part. She's not qualified. She doesn't have a PhD. She's not a historical activist. I mean, Roots is fiction. The other stuff is activism. It's not even history. Falsehoods poured in from otherworldly places. What the Star Trek actor turned activist George uh, Taki morphing in, into the claim that books written by slaves were removed after the white woman complains. Well, he's just a complete idiot anyways. Books like Ibram Kendi's are not written by slaves, and the audio showed that Haas explicitly advocated for adding a book about a slave, Britt Johnson, and for keeping one based on interviews with former slaves, remembering the days of sorrow. The smear on Haas appeared to be retribution for, from a larger battle between citizen historians dedicated to researching their state and academics who are more likely to use history as a vehicle for contemporary leftist politics and to jealously guard the domain. Exactly right. That's the issue here. Academic historians don't want amateurs infringing on their turf. They don't like it. They don't really like uh, anyone who's not in their clique saying something that would be, I mean, oh, oh, that, that would challenge what I say. These people are ridiculous. The Smearn Haas appeared, uh, I'm sorry, that. The Texas State Historical Association, which has been in existence since 1897, is designed to be split between academic historians and lay people. 
But in recent years, the board was packed with academics. Its chief historian, Walter Bugner, used, that, used the group to promote racial conspiracy theories, claiming in 2021 that the Alamo became this symbol of what it means to be white. It is again tapping into a defense of white privilege. TSHA is a private group, but likely the most important history group in Texas, according to us. So this is the thing. All of these academic historians get out and they, they weasel their way into these organizations and they destroy them because they have advanced degrees and because they can't get a job doing anything else. They destroy this stuff. They rot it from the inside out. Whether it's your academic presses, your historical associations, your historical societies. People have been pointing this out for nearly 30 years. 40 years, this is what's been happening. And they've destroyed real history in America. Since they need their articles peer-reviewed and published, the academics need to control who the peers are doing the review. TSHA has the most important scholarly history journal in the state. They need it, but require full ideological capture and can't tolerate deferring points of view, Haas told the Daily Wire. She's exactly right. you got to get your friends to peer-review your stuff so that it gets published. If there's any dispute, now, again, if you're not in their clique, if you don't write stuff that they don't like, they won't publish it. Oh, this this needs to have this, this revision, this, and I can't do this because it doesn't say exactly what I want it to say here. Peer review is a joke because your peers usually don't know what they're talking about in their profession anymore. And I mean, I've pointed this out several times that these academic historians are really dense and they really don't know their subject very well. But the fact is, the peers aren't very good either. They might know some of the secondary literature, but a lot of times they're pretty bad on the primary material. And even the secondary material is only stuff that they agree with. A businessman, J.P. Bryan, stepped in as executive director to bail out the TSHA after declining membership perhaps due to the fact that most Texas history buffs aren't keen on constant denigration of Texas. We are disenfranchising our non-academic members who make up 90% of our membership because they're not properly represented on the board, Brian once said. But Nancy Baker-Jones, the association president and academic, appeared to want to use Brian for his financial expertise, then cast him aside. Of course. You know, you can't have anything that appeals to the non-academic. In March, TSHA attempted to install yet another academic and became outraged when Bryan suggested that to comply with their bylaws, they should install a layman, the first black chief justice of the Texas Supreme Court, instead. Professor Jeffrey Littlejohn, the co-chair of Sam Houston State University's Diversity Committee, stood up and shouted his displeasure at the prospect of a black conservative history buff instead of a leftist academic, Haas wrote. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. So here is... Brian's saying, here, what we need to do is have a layman. We need to have this judge who, I mean, really is an academic. He's a, he's a judge. He's a lawyer. It's an academic. We should put this guy as the chair. Oh, no. Uh, that's not diverse enough. You can't make this stuff up. In May, Judge Carrie Neves blocked the academic packing, writing the bylaws require that the membership of the board of directors be balanced substantially between academic and non-academic members. The present board is not substantially balanced because the makeup is presently 12 academic members compared to 8 non-academic members. The two professors behind pushing the media smear of Haas were angry at her for, for her role in stopping the Texas history coup by academics. On Facebook, a former junior college professor named Michael Phillips 
indicated that he and other academic historian Ben Johnson were behind the Texas Monthly article, and that people who think you can work with Haas and company regarding the TSHA are delusional. So we've got these two academics saying that Haas is the problem. They're, they wanted to smear her and get her removed, right? Phillips was the only academic quoted by Texas Monthly's Monticelli, who later, who last year wrote a lengthy article in Rolling Stone about how Phillips was let go by a junior college and was suing it, alleging that it was in retaliation for pushing leftist politics. On Instagram, the socialist journalist labeled Phillips as legendary. And there's a, in the article, there's a screen capture of this. I don't know which one's which. Although Haas spent a career in Texas book publishing, the outlet called her a mere graphic designer, implying that she should not have a PhD in history. She could not ascertain what books were related to a Texas plantation and what weren't. That characterization was removed by Texas Monthly after she confronted the editor with the audio. Of course, you don't know anything. You don't know what books are about this or that because you don't have a PhD. These people are real dorks. In the, in the most... Awful way. They're real dorks. And they want to ensure that other dorks like them are on the board of all these things so that they can dork it up and write stupid stuff. And of course, it goes through. Haas said that the Greenback attack was the modus operandi of leftist academics who chafed because she knew enough about history to offer critiques when they relied on their credentials to push biased information. For example, she said when Johnson alleged that low voter turnout in 1918 was because of racist voter suppression, she reminded him that the Spanish flu shut everything down a week before the primaries that year. If you're such a professional, why do you admit that? And instead of answering, the answer is always, well, you're just a white supremacist. This is true, right? This is what they do. This is what they do. I love this piece because it shows what these people actually do. Just go into social media and just watch it. This is what they do. They cannot have a debate because they just fall back to their standard positions. Oh, well, you're racist. Even if you didn't make any statement, that would be. She's just saying, well, I mean, you know, what about the fact that uh, we, we shut down the primaries um, uh, for, for a week? Shut everything down. Well, no, no, no. You're just a racist. In August, the lawsuit was settled and Baker Jones, the association president, and another academic agreed to resign. The Texas Public Policy Foundation called the outcome a win for history and against wokeness. Since then, leftist academics have been in a tailspin at the idea of opposing views, Haas said. The historians started resigning because they don't know what to do. For the past decades or so, they've just appointed their grievance studies people to the committees and enveloped the whole organization, she said. Exactly. I mean, this is beautiful. What they've done and all these people resigning. And there's actually some interesting things happening, even though I don't, it's, it's not really related to this, but at Monticello, if you can somehow crack this, they will all resign because they cannot take, it's what I said at the beginning, they cannot take critique. Their worldview is activism. And if you start chipping away at that, they don't know what to do. They have no, ret they have no retort. They have no argument against it. It's just platitudes and slogans and chants. That's the problem. Haas said that history is the domain of all Americans and that activists, academics have squandered their credibility by subjugating facts to ideology. She said primary source documents have more to teach people about slavery than contemporary ideologues like Kendi do, saying we have their words. That's moving stuff. Exactly. You know what? 
Um, I mean, this is what I've said many times. Books like Eugene Genovese's Roll, Jordan, Roll are now ignored. They're ignored. Uh, even Time on the Cross, Vogel and Ingerman's Time on the Cross, ignored. You know what else is ignored? The slave narratives. They're often ignored because when you read those, they don't necessarily fit into a neat picture that the, that the uh, activist historians want you to have. Now, they'll cite the bad stuff in there, but they won't ever cite anything else. Ever. Because it doesn't fit an agenda. It doesn't fit a narrative. And it's not going to go their way. Her Texas History Trust has digitized about 30,000 pages of primary source material so that public teachers and scholars can go direct to the sources on their phone for free. I put a 25,000 research library in people's pockets, she said. $25,000 research library. When I announced the digitization project, the activist historian crew objected. You need an archivist with a PhD to do that. No, I really don't. I love it. This, this woman just beat them back, and it's great. And they don't know what to do about it. It's so good. And, and I mean, you see this, and you see what's happening, and you see the whole point of it. You see the entire picture. This Daily Wire piece did a fantastic job of exposing what these people really are. Again, just go on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else, any social media site, but Twitter's the worst for any amount of time with these Twitter historians and see what they do. It's exactly how they operate. You disagree with them? Well, you're just a racist. You're a white supremacist. Whatever it is. Whatever stupid platitude. Or, I mean, it's just a simple disagreement. Well, we don't agree with what you're saying here. Oh, well, that's because you're a racist. So, uh, because I disagree with your position on history, that makes me something? It, it's, it's completely ridiculous. This is what these people do. They are the worst of the worst, thin-skinned, weak-minded, pathetic, low-IQ people most of the time. And uh, dealing with them is, uh, is just annoying. But I'm glad Haas really showed you the way. Well, attack it now. You're going to get smeared. But I mean, if, you took, if, if, if people would go out, and this is think locally, act locally now. Again, this is think locally, act locally. If you want to change this stuff, go after your local historical commissions. Go get the lefties out of those things. Get them off those boards. Take them out. Because if you can do that, you're going to change the way we teach history in America. That's how it has to happen. It's not going to happen from the universities, from the top down. It can't. It has to be the amateurs. It has to be the people out in these historical organizations, historic societies, these kind of things. That's where you have to work it. And if you can do that, you could change the game. But again, that's a think locally, act locally thing. you got to go after it locally. Don't worry about the universities. They're a lost cause. Do the other stuff because that's how you're going to change the narrative. All right. See you next time on the Brian McLean Show. See you then.